James chapter 3 will be in the first 12 verses of that chapter. Um, when you get there, follow as I read. James 3, verses 1 through 12. James, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Is a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for in it we find everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight you would give us from your sufficient word much-needed instruction on how we ought to use our words. Illumine our minds, Lord. Help us to take greater ownership of our speech in view of this passage. We thank you for the light of your word. Amen. I want to begin by telling you about a brief but significant moment in church history. It's November 21st. 2021. It's the ordination service of one of my seminary friends. Let's call him Aaron, because his name is Aaron. It's a time of celebration and gospel sobriety as he, in front of the congregation, uh, is charged to faithfully preach the word of God and shepherd God's people. He was ordained to gospel ministry. And at the end of the service, the pastor emeritus, an older man, begins to call to the stage several uh, faithful pastors who have mentored my friend Aaron, and uh, men also who are shepherding churches in that same area that Aaron is serving at. And these men, as their names are called, ascend the platform to lay hands on Aaron and to pray for him. And the pastor emeritus, as he gets to uh, one of the last names says, We were hoping that the Reverend Jonathan Rourke would be here, but we just heard 
He's tested positive. Any well-meaning, normal person in 2021 would assume the best about this dear old pastor uh, as he announced to an entire congregation of people that someone who was supposed to be at the service has tested positive. Like, let's just talk, tell the whole room. But let's give this guy some grace. Well, that dear pastor, that's not the end of his sentence. He didn't say, for COVID. And let's be clear, that was the actual truth. Jonathan Rourke tested positive for COVID. This dear pastor said, we were hoping that the Reverend Jonathan Rourke would be here, but we just heard he's tested positive for AIDS. And that was about the reaction in the room. So someone said, COVID, COVID, not AIDS, COVID, COVID. And the Daryl pastor says, what? What, what, do you, what did I say? And of course, he retracted and corrected his statement. Uh, devastating mix-up. And it, it wasn't AIDS that is so serious. Uh, I think people will laugh for a while. Uh, hilariously awkward. And in an ordination service, no less. Uh, we all have had a moment or ten, even today or maybe in your entire lifetime, if you're the perfect person in this passage, where we want to take back what we said. Uh, we want those words back in our mouths. We regret how we, how we phrased something or we wish we hadn't been so harsh. Our words, perhaps in less publicly embarrassing ways, can have uh, this sort of tremendous effect on people. Sometimes positive, and more memorably often, negative. We can, with our words, tear down or build up. We can encourage and edify, or we can discourage and demoralize. We can honor and esteem, or slander and discredit. We can exaggerate or boast of our own version of reality. Or we can express our humble gratitude for what God is doing, even though it's not perfect. Our words matter. And in our passage tonight, James addresses what we call the tongue here. Our speech. Our words. You see, if James is the picture of a faith lived out, uh, our words are our faith spoken, our faith heard by others. And Jesus himself said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is to say, what we say is a reflection of what's in our hearts. Our words are tied intimately to the very essence of who we are and what we value and what we believe. Our words are tied to either a true faith or faith that cannot save. We live in a time where I believe we let ourselves off the hook all the time with our words. You see, some people, they just have a way with words, and other people, they're just a little bit quieter or a little more awkward. It's simply a personality trait, the way you talk. Uh, if someone's talkative, that's one thing. If they're kind of jokey, they should just stop. But that's the way they are. If someone's mildly inappropriate all the time, that's just the way that they are. They'll grow up someday. 
in for all of us, at least we're not like that one uncle who posts inflammatory things on Facebook all the time, right? We live in an era where we intake and output more words than ever before, maybe just not in a spoken way. You see, you read captions and watch stories of people filming themselves talking while a sitcom plays in the background as noise, white noise. And then your friend interjects to show you another story or something you need to listen to. And then we take a break to play Wordle. Words. They matter. I think now the higher percentage of our words are not as much spoken as this as much as they are blue and white bubbles. And yes, you should be blue. <laughs> you talk just as much to the rando on Discord than you do to your roommate, some of you. Words to us don't actually matter. They're watered down and weightless. They just are what life is consisted of. But James would have us understand otherwise. Our words actually matter. And they matter not only because they reveal what's in our hearts, they matter because they have a tremendous effect on the situations and the people around us. The past few weeks we've seen that our faith must be vindicated, must be justified, demonstrated in our works, what we do. And here very simply tonight, we see that the same must be true of our words. Our faith must be demonstrated by our words. So tonight, here in James 3, we see a faith spoken. A faith spoken. And we'll see four things about the tongue that will draw us to be more consistently careful about our words. Four things about the tongue that will draw us to be more consistently careful about our words. That we would be more focused on how our faith is reflected in what we say. First, and very briefly, we see in just verse 1, the teacher's tongue. The teacher's tongue. James begins his expose of the tongue by talking about the aspiring teachers in the room. Those who want to teach in the church. Look again at that verse. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, as James begins his instruction on how speech ought to reflect our faith, James warns those in the assembly who want to speak most. In fact, they want to speak for God. They want to teach. And I believe this is instructive for all of us, small group leaders and people who sit under teaching, we should understand what it means to teach. Uh, but it's a helpful word specifically to a few of you, the aspiring among us, those who want to be teachers of God's word, perhaps pastors or elders in God's church. I think the best way to see this is to turn to 1 Timothy 3 and see the character qualifications for elders. We'll look at 1 Timothy 3. And you just want to look at a phrase there. Look at 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and what does it say there? Able to teach. This is people who are logical, listenable, and faithful, we see through 1 Timothy, to what God's Word has to say. Look at verse 1, what, Timothy, what Paul says to Timothy about this kind of person. The saying is trustworthy, uh, 3 verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul is saying it's a good thing, it's a desirable thing, it's a noble pursuit that takes some work. And then look at chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verse 17. He says there, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we see from Paul, even just in 1 Timothy, that the task of teaching and preaching done by qualified men in God's church must be taken seriously. It's a high calling with high honor. And flip back to James. James, in our passage, is saying a very similar thing. He sees in the church, in the assembly, people, lots of people, who are clearing their throats and approaching the podium. And James, all he wants to say is, hold on, slow down. Not many of you should become teachers. Why? Because you should know, James is saying, if you teach... You open your mouth, and when you open your mouth, you'll be judged with greater strictness. We'll see later the nature of this judgment, but this is a very brief and very needed warning to the aspiring in the room, to the would-be, you-should-consider-going-to-seminary type of guy. Slow your roll, James is saying. Apply some humility and hear the instruction, not many of you should become teachers. As I have embarked on this journey myself over the past 10 years or so, I've not been perfect, and certainly not with my words. It's taken a lot of work, a lot of brain work, and a lot of heart work. You see, you don't just decide because you're natural up front, people seem to think you're godly, that all of a sudden you can learn Greek and become a spiritual leader. If you want to teach in the church, perhaps even make your money with your mouth, James is saying be very, very careful. See, if there is, underneath it all, the self-serving motive or a desire or a value in your heart for position or some validation for an insecurity that you have, or some gain that you envision from ministry, whether for your bank account or your spiritual resume, there is cause for pause here. If there is something other than a pure, undefiled, humble, God-given passion to see others grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, your words will betray you. James is saying, your words, as you pile them up as a teacher in God's church, those words will show what's abundant in your heart. Whether it's the spiritual good of others around you, 
or your own self-exaltation and benefit. And so for the aspiring preachers in the room, the more words and the more words handling God's truth, the more fodder for judgment you are piling up. And so if you aspire to teach God's word, this ought to cause you at least some pause. It's a conversation I have with many of you young men, and I appreciate the desire and the aspiration, and I encourage it almost all the time. But I think as we consider what it means to be called to the ministry, it's helpful to understand that to be called to the ministry isn't just the desire that you say that you have in your heart. I understand the call to ministry this way, that it's threefold. It is the First Timothy 3, 1, aspiration. It's a desire. You actually have to want to do it. But it's also if there is fruit in your life, if the Spirit is working in your life, if God is showing you you are someone that should be an example to the flock, not just someone who says cool things and smart things from the Bible, but someone whose life actually shows the transforming work of Jesus. And then thirdly, that call to ministry should look like the affirmation of people around you. If you're thinking, I want to teach God's word, you should ask people around you, people in your small group or your leaders, I'm thinking about this. Am I crazy? Should I do this? What are your concerns? Uh, there are so many men who go through our seminary at the church who don't ever ask that question. Their entire endeavor, their entire pastoral career is built on simply their own desire, their own aspiration. And all James is saying here is, be careful if you speak God's truth. Not many of you should become teachers, he says. Secondly, in this text, we see the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue in verses 2 through five. Here we see very plainly the power the tongue has, the underestimated potency of this little piece of pink flesh. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Hey, here we see the basis, the foundational truth for the warning we just saw in verse 1 to aspiring teachers. We all sin in a variety of ways, James says. And the most common and the most and the hardest to control of those ways is our words, our with our tongues. This is, as we've gotten used to, more rhetorical reasoning here from James. You see, he's not actually saying that perfection here is achievable, that you can be the perfect man. He's saying rhetorically, almost sarcastically, everyone stumbles in what they say, so no one is perfect. This is the basis for James's warning to would-be teachers in verse 1, that everyone stumbles. But here, in verse 2, he widens that instruction. We all stumble in many ways. Not just teachers, but all of us. Here it is that we see the power of the tongue. It is universally uncontrollable. We all cannot tame our tongues. 
and each of us has a tongue that is disproportionately powerful. This tongue has an effect over the entire body, far beyond its modest hiding place in your mouth. James gives us two illustrations to understand this power. First, look at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide, our, we guide their whole bodies as well. James gives us a picture of a horse and a bit. This 1,000-pound beast able to pull or work or gallop, yet controlled by this tiny bit in its mouth, a tiny piece of metal that applies pressure on the horse's mouth, even the tongue, and is connected to the bridle. It is used by the rider to give the horse commands. Now, I don't know how many of you have a friend who rides horses. Maybe there's some people in this room that can ride a horse. Uh, but somehow, it's always someone that surprises you, right? I think you expect to ride a horse, you got to be brave, tough sort of person. But your horse rider, equestrian-inclined friend is always somehow someone you think, she rides horses? She rides horses, really. I need to see it. And how or why is it that she or he rides horses? Well, because they're rich is really why. <laughs> but James is saying here, really, it's because they have the power of the bit on their side working for them. You see, with the bit in the horse's mouth, it doesn't matter what you look like, how tall you are, how brave you are, you can control its entire body. You can make it giddy up and whoa and left and right and do jumps and tricks and all kinds of things. And James is saying the tongue is like that bit. If you can tame it, you can control the entire body. It is a microcosm of who we are. It's small but strong, a puny yet powerful. Look at verse 4, and we see another analogy for the power of the tongue. Look at the ships also, James says, Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pirate, pilot directs. Pirate too, but pilot directs. And we see this other analogy of a ship and its rudder. Even back in the first century, there were very large ships. In fact, in Acts 27, the ship Paul was on on the way to Rome that had 276 passengers, so it's a big boat. This one in James is simply described as large, yet James says it's guided by a very small rudder, a small wooden paddle-like plank affixed to the hull of the ship. And as the wind carries the ship along, the pilot moves the rudder, directing the ship wherever he chooses. And so this small, inconspicuous piece of wood changes the direction of a huge ship. And James is saying, this is like the power of the tongue. There is disproportionate 
and even underestimated power in our tongues. Power that lies in the mouth of every person and is rooted in our hearts. Power that is both untapped and untamed in its natural state. Power that as those with true faith, we must acknowledge and learn to control. If, as those who desire to live out our faith, we contain this powerful little piece of our bodies, James is showing us we will have, in effect, tamed our whole being, our whole bodies. It's the hardest part of our bodies to tame. This is also the significance of our words, our speech, and the difficulty of taming the tongue. It's a great task to exercise self-control with our words, James is saying. This is a theme we've already seen in James. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious uh, religion is worthless. You see, if you think you are godly, but your speech is out of control, you're deceiving yourself. You may not be as godly as you think you are, James says. And your religion is worthless. If you can't bridle your tongue, your religion may very well be built on the worthless kind of faith that we've seen in chapter 2. That's the power of the tongue. In other words, your tongue, your words are so significant, so powerful, because they are a window into your soul. This is James echoing Jesus, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your tongue is a powerful indication of where your heart is. And that's why in verse 5, James says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. When you boast of great things, it's a reflection of the pride of your heart. When you slander, it shows the hatred in your heart. When you lie, it shows that you would rather protect yourself than speak the truth that God desires. When you grumble, you show the dissatisfaction in your heart with where God has you. This is the power of the tongue. Thirdly, in this passage, we see the destructiveness of the tongue. The destructiveness of the tongue in the rest of verse 5 through verse 8. Here we see not only the power of the tongue, but the incredible destruction it can bring. James introduces another illustration here in the second half of verse 5. Look there. How great A forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Here's not only the power of the tongue, but the peril of the tongue as well. The tongue is like a small fire, a lit match, so to speak. And in the middle of the forest, it can be seen as an incredible danger because it can set the whole forest ablaze. 
Now here in California, we don't have to think very hard to recall even the last few fires that have ravaged our state. You know, we know so many devastating stories, even our own family and friends who lost homes and are in communities that have been displaced. Some of these enormously expansive fires started by the smallest of sparks, a firework or a downed power line, even in some cases a cigarette or a smoldering match. The 2018 car fire, it's the sixth largest fire in state history, started when a truck blew out its tire and its rim scraped the pavement and sparks from that ignited the nearby brush. 2020, the El Dorado fire burned almost 23,000 acres, all started by a, by a pyrotechnic device at a gender reveal party. Small and silly, it set 23,000 acres ablaze. And these huge, devastating brush fires all started by a small fire. Uh, whether man-made or natural, <clears throat> pink or blue. And James is saying the tongue is like this tiny spark. It has inestimable, destructive power. But James goes further. Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The, that, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He's saying here, not only is the tongue like a small fire that sets the, the forest ablaze, the tongue is that fire in terms of our lives, our very existence. We can, with one word, ruin Thanksgiving dinner. We can, with one word, ruin a friendship or a career, we can with one word ruin our testimony for Jesus. In this way, the tongue is a whole world. This word is cosmos of unrighteousness. J. Mack puts it this way, the tongue is a microcosm of evil among our members. Al Mohler says this way, the tongue is the organ of the articulation of the fault. You know, with our tongues, we can reflect all that is evil, even more so than our other members of our body. Verse 6 tells us it's set among our members. It's part of our body, yet it stains the whole body. It sets on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. This is a never-ending, all-destructive nature that the tongue has. This word hell is Gehenna. It's a reference to hell itself in the New Testament, but it's also a reference to the Valley of Hinnom on the southwest side of Jerusalem. There was a garbage heap that was continually on fire and trash and, and Corpses were tossed into this continual fire. <clears throat> and so it's a wordplay for James to refer to the tongue as set on fire by hell. 
Because it is continual in its fire, but it is evil in its fire. The tongue is this kind of ever-present destructive force of evil within the members of our body. It has a destructive power to do enough evil for the whole body. Look at verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. This is the untamable, ever-burning destructiveness of the tongue. All manner of beast and bird, but reptile and sea creature has been tamed, yet no man can tame the tongue, James says, because of its evasively evil nature. Now, I know what you're thinking. This isn't meant to be a precise zoological statement here, so all of you fact-checkers can acknowledge that and not miss the point here. James is saying, in modern terms, Carol Baskin can have tigers in her backyard, and you can have a tarantula, you're crazy, but you can have a tarantula in your bedroom, or you can let a snake crawl over your shoulders on vacation with your family after you ride horses. But we, as men in our own power, cannot tame our tongues. In our own power, in our flesh, we cannot tame our tongues. It's impossible. It is this restless evil, full of deadly poison. I think it's the picture found in Romans 3. And Romans 3, if you know, is an encapsulation of Psalm 5 and Psalm 10 and Psalm 140. It says there, in describing the sinfulness of man, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And you might say, well, I mean, I've got one of those, but not all six. But the point of Romans 3 is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And we saw in James, even one transgression of God's holy law, and you are guilty of it all. The Proverbs describe this peril of the tongue also. Proverbs 12.18 describes rash words like sword thrusts. Proverbs 25.18 talks about false witness against your neighbor. And says it's like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Grace on campus, to the very end of our days, if left to ourselves, the tongue is this kind of continual evil, and if left untamed, will be a force for ruin in our lives and in our relationships. I think we get this far in our passage, and it seems like James offers no hope. He offers no help. It's just pointing out the problem. So what are we to do? How are we supposed to respond to the power and the peril of the tongue in this passage. I think the first thing we need to understand 
is that James is saying that on our own, man cannot tame the tongue. But as those redeemed with God's power, by his spirit, in glory to Jesus, we can pursue the tongue redeemed. We can, by God's spirit, tame the tongue, but only by his spirit. I believe our approach by that spirit must be varied. It must be multifaceted. We must have some different tools on our belt, so to speak. I think one of the first things we should consider is that sometimes, in order to curb this destructiveness of our tongues, we ought simply to close our mouths. We ought merely to zip it in a spirit of self-control. I think the only time that we think of being quiet is when someone tells us to be quiet and we do it spitefully. But we ought to, out of the spirit of self-control, as a fruit of the spirit, to say, right now I should not speak. And then to actually not speak. Sometimes what is on our minds and in our hearts just needs to be stifled. The fire needs to be put out by closing our lips. Consider what the Proverbs have to say on this. 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. 17.28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And then 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I think also, beyond just being quiet, there is a restraint, a self-control, a filtering that we see in Scripture, a consideration and a measured patience in how we form our words, our speech. Uh, This is what we saw in James 1.19. That we ought to be slow to speak. We ought to consider our words. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. You see, as we examine the destructiveness of the tongue, let us pursue, Grace on Campus, this kind of self-control, this kind of restraint that is dependent on the Spirit, both in biting our tongues and in guarding our speech. And therefore, we can disarm the tongue of its destructiveness. Finally, in this passage, we see, number four, the duality of the tongue. 
the duality of the tongue, verses 9 through 12. Finally, here in this last section, James focuses our attention on the duality of the tongue. Look at verses 9 and 10 first. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Here we see the inconsistency, even the hypocrisy of how we use our tongues. See, we raise our voices in worship and bless the Lord, and then we talk smack about somebody right after service. We pray righteous, godly prayers at prayer meeting, and then we turn around and slander someone at lunch afterwards. We share in small group about the great things God is doing in our lives, and moments later we criticize what our brother or sister in Christ is doing, or is not doing. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. This is the truth found in Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And James says at the end of verse 10 here, my brother's these things ought not to be so. You see, just because the tongue is powerful, just because it is a fire that is dangerous, doesn't mean that this sort of duality, this sort of hypocrisy, is acceptable for the Christian. In verses 11 and 12, James unpacks a few more illustrations. He says, Do you find in a spring both fresh and salt water? Does a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Do you find in a salt pond fresh water also? Uh, James completes this section of, uh, with vibrant imagery, another flurry of illustrations, and the principle in all of these illustrations is that these things all produce in like kind, in like manner, uh, whether a fresh water spring or a salt pond or trees that produce fruit, all of these things produce in like kind of their own nature. And I believe, surely, James, as he often does throughout this letter, he had the teachings of his brother Jesus in mind. Turn to Matthew 12. This is a passage we looked at last week. But we need to turn there and see what our Lord is saying. Matthew 12 and verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by our words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The duality of our tongues is an ugly reality for the believer. 
is we who redeemed and being sanctified struggle in our fallenness, in our sin. Uh, but James presses, this ought not to be so. Surely if our speech is a reflection of the abundance of our hearts, then if there is true faith in our hearts, faith that demonstrates itself in works, that faith should demonstrate itself in our words as well. That we should, with our tongues, bless our Lord and Father indeed, and with it also bless and encourage and edify and teach and compliment and cheer for and care for and bear burdens of and share truth with those made in the image and likeness of God. It's not enough to deal simply prohibitively with the tongue, so to speak. To focus only on what we ought not to say. Because there is also this beautiful and glorious use of our tongues that is the power of the tongue redeemed. Friends, let us, as those with true faith, destroy the duality of our tongues and instead devote ourselves to, in this area of our speech, to do what Colossians calls putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Just listen to Colossians 3. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then Paul, in describing what it looks like to put on the new self in, verse, in chapter 4, says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. GFC, let's pursue this putting off the old self in the area of our speech and put on the new self. Some of you recently took part in what I consider a quintessential UCLA experience, really. The Doc Weiler bonfire. It's a thing. You should do it. If you've done it, you should do it again. Make a jam. Fire. At the beach. Good vibes, hot dogs, s'mores, maybe a frisbee or a football. It's a good time. Of those times, one of the most memorable parts of that whole thing, like literally the most memorable, is the smell. It still resonates in your hair this week and in your gray hoodie that you thought you would throw away after and you can't just bring yourself to do it. And up in your nostrils, uh, this lingering smoke is a perfect picture, to steal the analogy from our text tonight, of the lasting effect of our tongues on all of life. You see, in our friendships, in our relationships, 
in each interaction and situation, our tongues can set ablaze so much in our lives with the malice and jealousy and pride in our hearts such that there is a lingering smoke. Our tongues become our reputation. Our tongues become a reflection of our character. Our tongues with others become our predisposed identity. And I think in our flesh we fight it and hate it and we try so hard and we just shut our mouths sometimes in frustration. And we go through seasons of just not talking as much because we don't want to mess it up and we just end up in the same place over and over and over with our tongues. Here's on campus. Let's commit ourselves to taming the tongue but in a way that is dependent on the Spirit of God. Intent on pure and positive speech, uh, letting that small fire that is our tongue uh, produce not lingering smoke in the lives of those around us, but a fire that burns bright and ignites a sacrifice of worship, a fragrant aroma to Christ and to those around us. Father, we thank you for your word, for in it we see instruction that is always at the right time for us as your people. God, this truth in your word tonight could not have come for a, at a better time for most of us. And we trust your spirit's work, Lord. We know as we see this text that there's so much work to do. But we'll be reminded, Lord, the work is not simply ours. It's the work of your spirit, and the work of your spirit only. But Lord, help us to be obedient in those efforts. Help us to devote ourselves to obedience to you, because by our works, but also by our word, we will be justified before you, our creator, in the end. Thank you for your word. We pray your blessing on this group, and Lord, we ask that you would help us to tame our tongues, and by your strength, in Jesus' name, amen.